The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. While we sing of our need, acknowledging our sin, our need for forgiveness, we sing of redemption because the Father sent His only Son who willingly came to die on a cross to pay the penalty that we deserve. We sing, by this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. And to a pagan society, that is, to a people with no biblical understanding or context, what we've just sung makes no sense. No sense to them. The ministry, the evangelism so far in Acts that we've seen, it's been to a people with an understanding of the scriptures. A people who they know about sin, they know God has a law, therefore, they know a need of forgiveness. But in the middle of chapter 14, which you can turn to at any point, Acts 14, in the middle of this chapter, beginning with verse 8, the audience changes. There's no synagogue in Lystra. And what they know is a, they know, well, they know a legend of the gods coming down as men. These gods going about the city and everyone turning them away. Showing no hospitality whatsoever except one elderly couple. And these gods, Zeus and Hermes, in judgment, they go up on a hillside and call for floodwaters to wipe that city out. Everyone except for that elderly couple whom they make prince and princess and and that's and they are blessed. This is their context. As Paul and Barnabas come and, and they do a great miracle. Paul and Barnabas they went from Cyprus to what is today southern Turkey on up to another city named Antioch in Pisidia. And what we saw last week in chapter 13 was that we saw the same pattern. They go, the best place to go is to the synagogue. Because they're speaking to a crowd who knows the scriptures. They knew, but they didn't understand these Jews and God-fearers. They, they know the scriptures, but they didn't understand that, that they... It points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He's the Messiah. So in ministering to them and in in this preaching to them, Paul gives a message that reminds them of biblical history, of their history. And he shows how it all points to, how it all culminates in the person of Jesus. And the evidence that proves the true identity of Jesus, the one who died on a cross, who's cursed... The evidence 
that he really is the Messiah is the resurrection. God vindicates him. God confirms that he is his Messiah by raising him from the dead. This is the message that Paul preaches. This is the truth that Paul confronts them with. And there are always, we we always see two responses, don't we? Jesus, he warned, he told his disciples, expect division. Expect it. Jesus didn't come to bring about peace, but a sword, he said. And, of course, the sword he's talking about, it's a metaphor for division. As some believe and others will not. The gospel is going to set one man against his father and a daughter against her mother. Division within a person's own household because the value of Jesus demands putting him first. Putting him above all things. Even the strongest human relationships of all, which is family. For those who truly see and follow Christ, there is there's no compromise. This is the reaction that we've seen. Some begging to hear more about Jesus and others getting jealous and trying to argue and twist and pervert the truth. Some rejoice at the life-giving light and others, well, they prefer the darkness. Preferring it to the point of violence, trying to turn off the lights, not wanting to be exposed as Children of the darkness. We see this in Iconium. But then there's a different context in Lystra. Maybe a context that, well, that we're beginning to see here in America. So, let's pray. As we consider ministering to our own culture, a culture that's, that's pluralistic and pagan. That is our culture. Pluralistic and pagan, and increasingly, sadly, doesn't know the scriptures. Let's pray. Our great and glorious and gracious God, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, we worship you. We recognize that you are the Lord. You are our why, our reason in life. We, we've come this morning to worship you with the thought that, that nothing else, no one but you, can truly satisfy us. And in your mercy and grace, in your great love and kindness, oh Lord, you give us so many good, good gifts to enjoy. You pour out these blessings upon us and even those who deny and ignore you, you, you bless them. Even those who actively suppress and try to push down and, and bury your glory, even, even they are blessed by your great care and kindness in life. Even as recipients of, of joy and pleasure, people attribute the majesty and the incredible design of your creation to something like chance, something that's illogical and superstitious and pagan. 
Lord, give us compassion for the lost. As your word declares, all of mankind is without excuse because you've made yourself known in creation. This knowledge of you, Lord, we know it's obvious. It's everywhere we look. It's even within our own souls as our consciences tell us that you are God, that we are accountable to you. Lord, we've just sung it. We, we don't boast in anything but you because, Lord, we know that we were blind, we were dead in our sin, and by your grace you have caused us to see and love you and come to you through faith in Jesus. So we, we boast in you. Lord God, we are utterly dependent upon you. And so we ask that you would bless us now as we worship you through the reading and study of your word. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us a right hope and confidence in you. One that is not afraid of rejection or even violence because your word is truth. It is salvation to all who believe in your son, Jesus. We pray in his great name. Amen. Well, we're going to read a lot, so you, you may remain seated. We're going to be covering, um, what, verses 1 to 23. Let's, let's begin with verses 1 to 7. A kind of, a kind of uh, witness or style of evangelism that we've seen strategically... They go to the Jewish synagogue in order to put the pieces of salvation together for the people who, who know the scriptures. And we see the same reaction of division, some persecuting and, and others believing. Let's read. Uh, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Paul and Barnabas, boy, when we read of their journeys and their experiences, we we think they are incredibly brave, aren't they? Bold and brave, but not foolish. <laughs> they hear that a mob wants to stone them, so they take off. They take off for the cities of Lyconia and, and decide we're going to preach the gospel there. In Lystra, there are no synagogues, no biblically literate people. So let's read on. Let's read on, consider some of the lessons that we can learn about ministering to a polytheistic pagan society. Verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. 
He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul looked intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, Oh, man, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring good news. We bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is God's word. Okay, we've seen a pattern all throughout Acts for preaching the gospel. And what we see here is different, isn't it? It's, it's not different as in a different gospel. It's just a different emphasis because of their different context. Their, their ignorance of the scriptures. And to be fair, Paul doesn't even have an opportunity to finish. He doesn't have an opportunity to bring it back to Jesus. He's interrupted in their attempts to worship him. In Acts 17, we probably get a better idea of what Paul would have said here, given the opportunity. Here, he's, he's dealing with a mob with a bunch of people who think he and Barnabas are the gods, Hermes, and Zeus. And when he hears this, we may think, when, when we hear this, when we hear this reaction and 
gods come down, they're Hermes and Zeus. We're really tempted, we could be tempted to think, oh, they're so primitive, aren't they? (laughs) So primitive compared to our sophisticated 21st century America. But let's remember, they probably could have answered the question, what is a woman? They probably would wonder about our lack, our society's inability to see what's so obvious to every single culture in all of human history. So let's not make the mistake of thinking that we're, we're too advanced to learn from this seemingly primitive time. Because, because really, an idol is an idol. False gods are false gods. Some just appear more sophisticated than others. There's a lot here, but but this morning I want to focus just on, on three things. Three things having to do with ministering to a pluralistic society. And they are show compassion to the needy, identify the idols, and endure hardships. First, show compassion to the needy. Notice in verse 9 that Paul, Paul's speaking. Luke doesn't give us the details here, but we can assume that Paul, Paul is preaching the gospel. He's teaching about Jesus because what we're told is that Paul notices that a man in the audience, a man who was crippled from birth, appears to believe. He's responding to Paul's teaching. Faith has to do with Jesus and salvation, and Paul sees this and decides to heal the man. Show compassion to the needy. Ministry involves not only speaking, but doing good deeds. It's word and deed. Paul preaches and he heals. It's what we see with the prophets of old, it's what we see in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus didn't just go around preaching. He also healed the sick and raised the dead. He ministered to people in word and deed. And here in Acts 14, don't you think Luke wants us to think, hey, haven't I already read this story? The healing of a lame man who gets up and starts walking and leaping and praising. Haven't I read this before? It's what Peter did in chapter 3. Healing the man at the gate of the temple. The description is the same. A man who had never walked is healed and immediately begins to do what he had never ever in his life learned to do. No muscle memory. No shakiness. He, he, he's not only walking, but he's jumping around. Luke tells us, tells it in this way because he wants us to see that Paul's like Peter who's acting, and Peter is acting like Jesus. It's the true ministry of the gospel that's done in word and deed. We saw it in chapter 8 as Philip goes to Samaria and not only preaches the word, but, but he casts out demons and he heals the lame. And it says that the crowds, they paid attention to what he was saying because they saw these great signs that he did. 
They listen to what he said because of the things that he did. Word and deed, they go together. You might be thinking, yeah, but those are miracles, Pastor Brian. (laughs) Those are miracles. I can't do miracles. And weren't these miracles, but weren't these miracles for the sake of authenticating their unique prophetic role? A role that no longer exists because God's word is now complete? Yeah. God can still do miracles, but he doesn't work with miracle workers like this. That's a unique role. But don't worry about miracles. The point is word and deed. And we're called to do the same. It's the point, it's the point that James makes, right? James who says faith without works is dead. Being a person that's, that's all talk and no love, no action, is not what God has called us to be. We are to be a people with a message, and we're also to do good deeds. In Acts 6, we see that, well, okay, this, the disciples, they're all about preaching. They're all about preaching the word. But when they become aware that the widows aren't being cared for, what do they do? They establish a mercy ministry. That's the equivalent of the diaconal ministry today. Our deacons. Word and deed. They go together. When people see the deeds, they listen to the words. And we've heard the saying, people will not care what you know until they know that you care. Here's what we know. And here's what were to say. The gospel is a message, right? We can't communicate the gospel without words. Here's what we know. We know that God cared about our sin. He cared to the point of sending his own son. And God the son cared to the point of taking on flesh and dwelling among us. He cared to the point of being a willing sacrifice so that our sins might be forgiven. And we know this is true because God raised him from the dead. These are the words that we are to communicate. This is the gospel message. We're supposed to say it. But we're also supposed to embody the gospel, pouring ourselves out for the needs of our neighbors, showing that we care by loving the needy. There's there's a credibility when they go together. And don't get hung up on on the miraculous. You don't have to have the ability to to raise the dead. But, But God raises you from death to life. And your actions can speak miraculously of his work in you. The ways that that a Christian loves, it's a supernatural exhibition. When people give generously for the sake of the gospel, when when they go and serve without any expectation of, of earthly reward or praise... When we hear these remarkable stories of forgiveness, it comes across as miraculous to people. How can a person forgive someone who's, who's gone into a church and murdered family and friends? And we hear stories of people forgiving the killer. How can a person show grace when they've been wounded and betrayed? It's not natural. 
It's the gospel lived out. It's a right recognition of how God has been toward us. How, how he enables and helps us to be this way to others. We can't live in a way that's inconsistent with how God has been toward us. And he changes us. We, we have a word to speak and our deeds are meant to illustrate and give credibility to that good news. Second, so, so Paul loves the needy and love, love, you know, love is not to enable, but it identifies the idols. Paul's speech begins with verse 15. And it's, it's in reaction to the people thinking that he and Barnabas are gods that have come down to them in the likeness of men. And Paul's speech begins basically saying, no, 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 stop it. We're only human. We're just like you. They're ripping their clothes as a sign that this is blasphemous. Not wanting to be like that other guy who was eaten by worms. But then he says, we've come to bring you good news. Gospel. And what is the good news? He says, you need to turn from these vain or worthless things to the living God. You need to turn from these worthless things to the living God, the God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is his deed. This is his testimony. Look at the kindness that he's shown to you by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons. He's satisfied your hearts with food and gladness. Again, notice how different this speech is compared to the one that he gave in Antioch where he's speaking to people who know the Bible. To them, he says, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And I think with this pagan crowd, he's, he's hitting on that same theme of, you can be free. He doesn't bring up the Bible. He doesn't quote any scripture here. He isn't mentioning anything about forgiveness of sins. So here's the question. How do you show people that they need Jesus? How do you show people that they, that they need Jesus if they, don't, if they don't believe in the law of God or in God's judgment or even that there is a heaven or a hell? How do they, how do they, why do they need Jesus? What's the point? How do you show people that they need Christ when they don't feel guilty? When he was talking to the people in the synagogue, he was able to say, you need forgiveness. You're trying to keep the law and you can't keep it. You've broken it and the law isn't meant to free you or forgive you. 
You need a savior. But here with these pagans, he doesn't even mention the law or sin and forgiveness. He's not saying to them, you're sinners and you need a new forgiveness. Instead, he's saying, you're enslaved by idols and you need a new master. Idols are vain, futile, worthless things. And Paul's bringing good news. You need to turn from these idols, these false gods, these worthless things. You need to turn from them to the living God. The one who made everything. When Paul, when he mentions vain things, he's referring to idols. They're worthless. They promise you something while leaving you empty. They promise fulfillment and they'll never satisfy you. Keep in mind that this is, this is not a monotheistic society. They'd, they didn't believe in one God. Instead, they believed in many gods. And you might wonder, how did they decide which God to sacrifice to? Which God to, to worship? It always comes back to the God that they think will help them. Kind of like us. There's a God of war. So if, if a person was a soldier, they'd sacrifice to that God. There were gods of commerce. So if, if you were a merchant, you'd sacrifice to the one that had to do with your particular area of work. If you were a farmer, you would, you'd sacrifice to the God of agriculture. There were lots of gods. Gods of the arts. Gods of love and romance. So whatever it is that you want or feel that you need, that's your God. In essence, your allegiance is not to some, some overarching God, but to the one thing that you want. And so, and so what's their worship? It's not a worship of God. It's a worship of their desires. It's a worship of love and romance. It's a worship of the arts or commerce or the crop or victory in war. By offering sacrifices, that person is saying, this is my hope. This is what I need. This is my satisfaction. This is my meaning in life. And when we put it in those terms, it sounds a lot like people today, doesn't it? Human nature doesn't change. So here's what Paul was actually saying. He's saying, he's saying, these things are dead. But I bring to you good news. I bring to you the living God. These things are powerless. But the one true God, he made heaven and the earth and the seas and everything in it. These gods, are, these gods are empty. They're worthless. They promise more than they deliver. They always take from you. They always take from you more than they actually give. But my God, the true God, he's the opposite of this. Do you realize that even though you ignore him, even though you... 
never acknowledge him, that, that life is a joy. All of, all of your joys, everything good, it comes from him. He's been doing this, he's been doing this all along, even though you, you don't acknowledge him, even though you ignore, the, ignore him. He's been doing this all along. He's the opposite of these other things. So, so here's the good news for the people of our day. Here's the good news for people today. Everybody lives for something, right? Everybody lives for something. Everybody's sacrificing for something to gain something. Everybody's saying, this is my meaning in life. And whatever that is, is your master. So in reality, you don't have control over your life. If you're living for love and romance, you don't control your own life. You're controlled by the people that you want to love you. If you're living for money or power, you don't control yourself. They control you because you have to do whatever it takes to get them and keep them. You want and you sacrifice for them. And everyone knows or will eventually realize that these masters, they never satisfy you. They promise more than they deliver. They take from you more than they actually give. You're not in control of your life. You're always mastered by whatever you live for. And so Paul says, only my God, only my God, the true God, the living God, he's the only one that if you serve him, he'll liberate you. All of these other gods, they're worthless. They, they take more than they give. But the true God, if you get him, he'll satisfy you. You say, look, he's already, he already fills your heart with gladness, Paul is saying to them. He's already filling your heart with gladness, even though you ignore, ignore him. So think what he'd do if you actually turned to him. And I'm sure Paul would have continued beyond this in verse 17. And he would have told them the way to, the way to get to the one true God. That the only way to him is through Jesus. But verse 18 tells us they were interrupted. It says that Paul and Barnabas, they couldn't, even, they couldn't restrain them from making sacrifices to them. So the, the message is cut short. It's interrupted. But if he could have continued, he would have told them that the one true God is the only master who will never leave you empty, who alone can satisfy you. And unlike your gods, if you fail him, he'll forgive you. None of these other worthless things will forgive you. If you fail to get them. If you fail to achieve the career or your idea of family that you thought would make you happy, it'll beat you up for the rest of your life and you'll hate yourself. But Paul says, my God, the true God, he became a human being and gave himself. In other words, he's the only master 
who became a servant and died so that we can be forgiven. No other God does that. We can learn from Paul. We need to keep in mind that the the gospel always comes down to the person of Jesus. But we also need to know who we're talking to. So in sharing the gospel, ask questions. Do you ever go to church? What do you think about? You'll get an idea. If you're talking to a person with some ideas of the Bible that need correction or input or people that have no concept. And it's surprising that here in America there are many people that they don't have any biblical knowledge whatsoever. We need to know who we're talking to. We need to know because some people, they simply don't care about the Ten Commandments. And telling these kinds of people that they're sinning and need forgiveness, it'll be like a foreign language to them. Or they'll say, you can't impose your moral standards upon me. Your, that's your truth. I have my truth. If a person doesn't feel the need of forgiveness, they might conclude with, well, why would I need Jesus? Why would I need Jesus? And Paul's approach here would say, everybody's living for something. Everybody's living for something. And whatever you're living for is mastering you. It's the reason that you're angry. It's the reason you're disappointed. Because the thing that you're building your whole life around, that that you love most in life, is actually controlling and enslaving you. But I know a true God, Jesus Christ, who is the only God. And if you get him, he'll satisfy you. And if you fail him, he'll forgive you. We don't tend to call them idols today, but that's what they are. And people know, or life will eventually tell them, that these idols, they're worthless, they're vain, they're empty things that that never give as much as they take. And the good news, the gospel, the good news is that if you turn from them and turn to Jesus, he will satisfy your heart both now and forever. Show compassion to the needy through word and deed. Identify the idols that cannot satisfy. And lastly, we need to learn to endure hardship. One minute they're offering sacrifices to to Paul as a god. And the next thing you know, they're sacrificing him to whatever worthless idol they wanted to hang on to. I don't know if it's what they had in mind, but people are fickle, aren't they? The Jews who opposed them, they weren't content to simply drive them out of Antioch and Iconium. They, they traveled miles followed after them to to this city of Lystra, and they turned the people who wanted to worship them into people who want to murder them. It's hard to imagine. You know, we hear about these stonings. Can you imagine an angry mob surrounding you with big rocks in their hands? It'd be terrifying. 
these stones and you're beginning to be hit one after another, bruised, scraped, cut, crushed, to the point where everyone thinks you're dead. Paul evidently is knocked unconscious. They drag him out of the city. They think he's dead. His disciples are probably mourning his death, gathered around him, and Paul wakes up. Apparently God has more for Paul to do. Paul wakes up, goes back into the city, and leaves for Derby the next day. And likely, we can assume that night he stayed in the home of a disciple who cared for him in whatever way they could. Paul and Barnabas, they're not discouraged. You would think after something like that, they'd be too fearful to preach the gospel. But they're not discouraged from preaching the gospel. They go, when we look at this, this route, see up Derby. What is it? The red line is where they're going. They end up in Derby. Here's where they came from, Antioch and in Syria. They could have just traveled the short route by land. But what do they do? They go back through the cities where they had all of this trouble and persecution and then sail home. It's interesting that they took that route. They go all that way instead of taking that land route. The reason that they went back through these cities is found in verse 22. It says to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. They wanted to to appoint elders to encourage them to stay strong. They've witnessed persecution. They're young in the faith. They're going to face their own persecution. Paul wants to make sure that they know they're going to have to endure some hardship. These disciples, they they saw it all. They saw all that happened to Paul and Barnabas. So he wants them to know that, that following Christ means enduring hardships. In fact, here's how Paul says it at the end of verse 22. He says, through many tribulations or hardships, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? What's your reaction to that statement? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we we know what it can't mean. It can't mean that we must suffer in order to go to heaven. That by suffering, we're now qualified to go to heaven. That's not what it means. Um, And we can say that's not what it means because that would contradict most everything that Paul says in the New Testament. So what does it mean? It probably means a lot of things, but one thing it does mean is that we don't tend to grow in the likeness of Christ without some hardship, without some suffering in life. Think about in the long run, in the long run, the things that actually give you joy in life, they're things like being dependent upon God, learning to to trust Him, knowing that, that He's working all things for your good. It's things like learning to pray, um, humility. Think of it. Humility. What a relief. I'm looking forward to it one day. What a relief humility is or will be. 
It's a relief when you've spent years worrying about what people think of you, trying to save face, being offended all the time. In the long run, what you learn is that the things that make you a peaceful, joyful person are the things that drive you to God. Hardships, sufferings, they drive us to God. They teach us to pray. They teach us to trust Him. To be humble and depend upon Him and not ourselves. To care more about Him and His work than what people think of us. Hardships drive us into the kingdom of God because we realize that we need Him. And so if we don't experience many tribulations, we'll be content to to play around on the outside of the kingdom instead of entering into God's kingdom. And by kingdom, we shouldn't only think of heaven and the new earth. Yes, heaven and the new earth, that's the ultimate realization of God's kingdom. But let's not forget that Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1. He ascended. He ascended to the throne to rule as king. And all throughout Acts, we see Jesus working in and working with the people of his church, building and ruling over the kingdom of God. So yes, the kingdom of God will eventually have a final realization, but there's also a sense sense in which we're living in the kingdom right now. Paul says that in order to be disciples, being those who love people in word and deed, who understand the the trap of worthless idols, that ministering to people means that we must endure hardships. And these hardships are not, they're not pointless. They drive us to God. They drive us to God. They make us useful in his kingdom work. Or as, or as Paul would say later in 2 Corinthians, they prepare for us, they prepare for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We need to, we need to love people that we minister to in word and deed, not enabling them, being able to help point out the the idols that master them and control them and offer them freedom in a God who will always and ultimately satisfy us and that it's worth whatever hardship we, we go through because that drives us to this God and equips us for this good work. Let's pray together. Lord God, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, we worship you. And in doing so, we recognize that that it's you, and not, not the various gifts, but it's you who satisfies us. Lord, give us compassion to our own pluralistic pagan society. Make us a people who do not isolate into our comfortable bubble of Christianity. But give us a heart to minister to the lost. 
to know and share the gospel, to be a people who, who also do good deeds that demonstrate your goodness. Give us insight and compassion. Give us endurance in facing hardships and, and use these trials, use these difficulties in life, we pray, to drive us to you and your kingdom. Lord, we love you and praise you and ask for your help and blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.